0: Joyously able to talk with the people around you. I promise to give you a chance after the service. Let me go ahead and start off this morning with a bit of an apology. So this morning, uh, my family this week caught a small cold, and it did nothing to me but affect my voice, which you have to appreciate the irony in that. Yes, I've been praying the Lord gives me strength to continue speaking, but if my voice slowly gets softer through the sermon, it's, uh, well, you can pray for me in that, can't you? But we'll make it. Lord calls us to be ready in season and out of season, and right now my vocal cords are out of season, but we'll, we'll see if we can make it through John chapter 21 anyway. Well, as we come to John chapter 21, you can turn there in your scriptures with me. We'll be reading the passage in just a minute, but we just finished John chapter 20, where the final verses of John 20 say, now Jesus did many other signs In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, if that feels like the end of the book of John to you, uh, I understand. John's giving you the point for why he's writing. And so, chapter 21 here kind of serves as an epilogue to John's gospel. He's wrapping up some things in chapter 21. And today, for us to get the, to extract the full meaning out of John 21 here, we're going to have to look at several other passages and connect how does what is happening in John chapter 21 connect to other passages. We have to go beyond the mere what is happening to the why. You know, I, I am not much of an English person. Who in here loved their English classes? Who in here loved, shame on you, all of you. I hate English. I'm sorry, English teachers. I know there are some of you out there. Uh, I really hated my English class. In fact, my claim to fame at one point was that I managed to never read a book even through graduating college. Uh, Spark notes are a wonderful thing. (laughs) I'm sorry again, English teachers. It is in fact true. Ask my wife. Um, See, here's the point. I didn't understand why you needed metaphor, simile, figurative language. Look, if you got something to say, just say it. You don't need to put it in flowery speech. And yet, today, we're going to need to pull out some of those English skills. We're going to need to cross-reference. We're going to need to think about not just what happened and what was the result of what happened, but rather the why and what are the implications of that. So you can't read the scriptures like you would read a car magazine. It's not just data points. There's much that Jesus will be doing in this passage that draws on other parts of scripture or that draws on the disciples' own experience in the past. So today, whether you like English or not, let's put on those skills and let's try once more to consider how we might look at this word of God as a piece of literature that holds together as a unified whole. Before we jump into God's word, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the ability to come to your word this morning. Thank you that you have given us your holy word, which instructs us and teaches us, guides us, rebukes us, corrects us. Lord, I do ask that today you would gently bring us to the remembrance of things we may have already known, but have forgotten. Father, I pray you would give me strength in my voice this morning to continue to bring your word to this church. Uh, Let not the brokenness of this world affect the way that I bring your word today. Lord, we praise you once more for this congregation and this word. May your spirit have his work among us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me to John chapter 21. Let's start in verses one through eight. After this, The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. There are two things I want us to see in the beginning of this passage. Uh, firstly, Jesus reinvites his disciples to follow him. And secondly, that Jesus reminds them to abide in him. Jesus reinvites his disciples to follow him, and secondly, Jesus reminds them to abide in him. The disciples have gathered at the Sea of Tiberias. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, for some reason, has three different names in the scriptures, but it's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. He instructed them through the angel at the resurrection, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. And so the disciples, after seeing Jesus in Jerusalem, leave Jerusalem, and they go up to where Jesus has told them. Now, whether they're there for a short while, a long while, we're unsure, Whatever it may be, they either got hungry or they needed some money. So what did they do? They turned back to the profession, which many of them had been a part of before being with Jesus, fishing. Simon Peter says some of the most unremarkable words in the scriptures, I'm going fishing. And sure enough, the disciples, as they regularly do, follow Peter's role. He goes out and he goes fishing. And this night, They go out and they catch very little, in spite of the fact that Peter, James, and John are very experienced and even professional fishermen. They catch nothing that night. This passage goes on to show how Jesus shows up, tells them to do something different with their fishing, and they catch a large amount of fish. Now this week I was explaining this passage and we were talking about it in my family and one of my girls says, yeah, I know that story. The passage goes on to talk about how Jesus will have a charcoal fire and have cooked for them. And yet, my older daughter, she, was, she said, you know, I don't remember that part of the story. And we went back and forth a little bit on this, only to realize we're talking about two different instances of basically the same thing. For you see, Jesus was recreating the very first moment he called Peter, James, and John. We see this moment where they're out on the water Late at uh, almost before daybreak, catching fish, but they got nothing. And then Jesus shows up and they catch a great amount. This happens in John chapter 21, that's our passage, as well as Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we're told that Peter, James, and John are in professional business together, being fishermen. They fished all night long, catch nothing. Jesus shows up, says, Hey, I need you to do something different, and they obey Jesus and they catch a large quantity of fish. There is great parallelism going on between what happens in Luke 5 and John 21. This is why the, Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the way that the apostle John refers to himself in his gospel. That's the reason John, the disciple, realizes he puts two and two together, and he goes, oh, it's Jesus on the shore. They didn't see him. They didn't know that it was him. And John puts it together and exclaims, I know exactly who that is. I've been here before. We caught nothing. You remember James? You remember Peter? We were catching nothing, and Jesus showed up and he called us to be fishers of men. And so John exclaims, It is the Lord. They followed him in his earthly ministry when he first called them. And so now Jesus reinvites his disciples to follow him once more. Will they, having abandoned him before his crucifixion, these seven disciples, having Thomas doubt his resurrection, in spite of that, Jesus says, I invite you once more to follow me. This is a beautiful moment for the disciples, the seven of them in this boat. Maybe you need to hear this today. You've followed Jesus before, but you failed recently, perhaps even in a big way. You're wondering if Jesus is done with you. Is he done with you the way that he might have been done with those disciples? Look at how Jesus treats his disciples after their apostasy before the cross. He does not abandon them. He does, he's not, I'm finished with you. He says, would you like to come back and follow me? Would you be willing once more to leave everything you have and to come be my disciple? This is the way that Jesus treats his followers. Regardless of why you feel like you failed, Jesus reinvites you to leave everything like you did the very first time and to follow him. I won't persist on this point for we will hear this in more and greater detail even next week as we hear of Jesus restoring Peter. So Jesus reinvites his disciples to follow him, but secondly, he reminds them to abide in him. Peter, James and John as we said, they've been they're experienced fishermen. They know what they're doing. In spite of that, they've made their profession on catching fish, and they've obviously done well enough to grow up, to make a business out of it. In spite of their professional skills, they are unable to catch any fish this night. Now, obviously, this is Jesus doing this on purpose, but they cannot catch anything. And the point is really quite clear. When Jesus shows up, fish are caught. When Jesus isn't there, there are no fish that are caught. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. This is reinforcing that point that just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 15, the author of John wrote. I'll read it there. He says, this is Jesus speaking, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, the disciples' inability to catch any fish, and then Jesus arriving shows us we are dependent upon Jesus. We are dependent upon him and abiding in him that anything of spiritually good consequence may happen in our lives or the lives of others. Because of our sin nature, we tend to think that we can be self-reliant. We think, you know what, I can handle this situation in my life. I can try to convince someone to believe in Jesus. It's tempting to think we can produce change, either in ourselves or in another person. Perhaps our persuasive words or effective policies or high incentives may cause someone to act in a way that we would want them to act. Some Christians might believe that if we explain the gospel to our family members that don't believe, and we're persuasive enough, and we're clear enough, that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some churches think if we set the right tone and atmosphere and mood, then people will want to follow Jesus Christ, as if the right number of candles or soft music are the way that the dead sinner comes to life. No, the truth is that God must breathe life into the dead soul. God must do the work. Unless the Father draws, no one comes to Jesus Christ. Hear Jesus' words again. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The disciples got a visual picture of this when they're out on the sea catching nothing, being fruitless in their fishing. And then Jesus says, hey, why don't you go fish over there? Throw the net on the right side. And sure enough, they catch fish. Jesus shows up and fruitfulness abounds. Real fruitfulness only comes when you learn to abide in Jesus. Abiding means that you have consistent fellowship with him. You permit his word to fill your mind. You permit his direction to direct your will. You're transformed in your affections as his word settles into your heart. Abiding means that you love and cherish your Savior above all else. Just like Peter, when he hears John, John says, it's the Lord. What does Peter do? He throws on his outer garment so that he's not indecent when he shows up to see Jesus. He throws on his outer garment and he forgets about the fish. I mean, Peter's been struggling all night to catch something and he just abandons it. He's like, forget the fish. I'm going for Jesus. It is the Lord that I want. Peter jumps in and he goes to see his Savior. Do you want to be fruitful for your Savior? Do you want to produce 30, 60, and 100-fold what he has invested into you? Abide in Christ. Let me tell you the joyful thing that this is. To abide in Christ is not a tremendous work on your behalf, as if you must will it into existence. Abiding in Christ starts by loving him. It starts by delighting yourself in him rather than try to take on struggles and manufacture your way into spiritual fruitfulness, why don't you rest? Rest in the joyous love of your Savior Jesus Christ for you. Begin by delighting in who he is. Fruitfulness will come when you learn to do this, to fill your mind with the words of Jesus. To direct yourself toward him, to look upward to your Savior for all that you need. Spending more time enjoying him than trying to do something for him. Then those around you will see the soul satisfying joy of knowing Jesus. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Isn't that what the people around you really want? Something that satisfies the deep longings of their soul? And when they see somebody has that, when they see somebody has rested from their works, and they found joy in Christ, they'll see a great joy there. And perhaps, just perhaps, if the Lord opens their eyes, they will desire it and find Jesus is the satisfaction for their own soul. Abide in Christ and you will live a fruitful life apart from him you can do nothing but it does say whoever abides in me bears much fruit not maybe not possibly they will bear much fruit Jesus has reinvited his disciples given them a clear picture of why they need to abide in him well what does it look like for those who will do this if they take his reinvitation to become his disciples once more to follow him in faithfulness to abide in him consistently. What does service look like? The rest of our passage makes this clear. Let us read chapter 21, verses 9 through 14. When they, got out of the, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. So, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want you to make, imagine a scenario with me here. You have the picture, the story from today. Jesus shows up, they catch a great number of fish, and then they arrive on shore, and we just read what happened. I want you to replace the figure Jesus here for just a moment. Imagine if it wasn't Jesus on the shore when they're hauling in this great catch. What if it was Tiberius Caesar? the Caesar of their day? What if Caesar was on the shore? What would have happened when the disciples hauled in those fish? Maybe Caesar would have seen their great skill in catching fish and he would have hired them to be his fishermen. He would have rewarded their skill with a job. Or maybe Caesar would have seen that they hauled in a great number of fish and he would have demanded that he receive some of it. You brought in those fish, this is my land. I want you to cook for me and make me the fish. It's early and I want some breakfast. You know what Caesar wouldn't do? I guarantee you Caesar would not step off his horse, make a charcoal fire and cook them breakfast and invite them to come and have breakfast with him. That is not the way emperors act. Jesus is not like human emperors though. He is different and we praise the Lord. What is it like to submit ourselves to Jesus? For we sometimes have a fear of submission. What will it be like? If I submit to this person, will they treat me well? If I submit to these authorities in my life, will they take advantage of me? Same question might be asked for Jesus. What will happen if I submit myself to Jesus? Many of you are acquainted with the phrase from Lord Acton of the 19th century, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is true of sinful human beings, but not so of Jesus. Jesus is different, for he says, even in Mark chapter 10, some of you read this in your Sunday school class this morning. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus does not use his authority and his position for his own benefit. Jesus shows up on the shore, starts a charcoal fire, and cooks his disciples fish after a long night of them out on a lake trying to catch something. You see, Jesus is the resurrected Savior of the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God in the flesh. No amount of praise, honor, and glory would be too great for him. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death, and now he comes to the disciples and he cooks them a meal. Do you see the gentle and lowly nature of Jesus Christ? The gentle and lowly nature of the almighty second person of the Trinity. We do not have to be afraid of Jesus' authority. What will it be like if I follow him? If I leave all that I have and I go after Jesus, will he treat me well? Yes, he will, for he is gentle and lowly. Now, this doesn't mean that following Jesus won't be hard. It will be hard. This doesn't mean that following Jesus will be free of pain. There will be pain in life for following Jesus. But come whatever may, you will have a king who will bow low and meet you in your suffering. He will meet you in your pain and in your sorrows. Do you want to know the sure assurance of this, for he died on the cross for you. He was willing to be very lowly and even die on your behalf. Just like Jesus provides for his disciples that night on the sea, he says, come and have a breakfast. Your king, your Lord, your master will provide for you. Yes, submitting himself, submitting yourself to him means following him in whatever he calls you to do but he will provide for you all along the way. I hope that sinks into your soul for just a minute. Maybe God is actually calling you to something that you're not sure you want to follow him into. You're worried about what would happen for this or that. Well, if I follow Jesus, what could happen in this relationship? What might happen to me in that circumstance Will I have what I need? Jesus says, Follow me. I'll provide for you. He shows it in this passage. Then we see in verse 12 it says, The disciples did not dare to ask him, Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? This seems like a strange question to us. We are so accustomed, I think, to thinking of Jesus as the resurrected Savior. We regularly think of him as the divine second person of the Trinity. And yet the disciples here have a moment where they see the resurrected Jesus, not ascended to military authority, reigning as Messiah yet, but as a humble servant. And they're going, who is this? You see, they get a moment to peer behind his humanity and see his divinity and his control over the seas once more. There's a familiar nature to Jesus, and yet an unfamiliarness to him. They don't dare ask him, who are you? Because they also know the answer to that question. He's Jesus. He's the one we followed for three years. I know him. But I also feel like he's so different from me. Your risen savior is exalted. If you believe in his name today, your risen Savior is exalted and stands above the heavens. He does laugh at his enemies. He is unlike you and me. And there is an uneasiness we might experience when we get a glimpse of his power. It would even cause us to tremble before the God who made us. But you know him, don't you? You know it is the Lord. Lord the one who stooped low to rescue you from your sins. He became a servant of all. He served you in dying on the cross. And even in his resurrected power, he is gentle and lowly to his people. Some of you here delight in the power and the justice of God. The thought of God getting vengeance upon his enemies excites you because you want to see God victorious. The day of God's wrath coming, you think, yes, Lord, let it come for I want to see you enthroned on high. Let your enemies be trampled under your feet for you must be exalted. The coming of wrath upon sinners, it does not unsettle you because you see the goodness of your God in his wrath. If that's you, you probably have no problem calling sin for exactly what it is. Sin is sin. We'll call it straight. And you're probably hard on yourself when you sin against the Lord. So to you, if that's you, I want you to see a different side of your Lord in this passage. Do you see his gentle and lowly nature He is resurrected and crowned with power and authority, but he uses it to serve his disciples. It is good for you to see God high and lifted up on his throne, but don't miss that Jesus also stooped low and he cooked a meal for his fellow disciples. Maybe for just a minute, for just a minute, stop looking up for your God thinking he's always enthroned in heaven and that's the only place he resides, you might need to consider looking down at your feet and remembering the same God who's enthroned in the heavens is at your feet. He washes the disciples' feet. He cooks them a meal. The God who you serve is the God who serves you. What is it like to live under the authority of Jesus? It is to live under the authority of a king who serves his subjects. He is a good king. He is a gentle and a lowly king. So in this simple passage where fish are caught and Jesus eats a meal with his disciples, we see there's much more going on than just catching some fish and eating some breakfast. Jesus says, will you come after and follow me once more? Learn to abide in me. Delight yourself in me. And I will provide what you need. I will take care of you. May we see the Lord in such a way that we would follow after him once more, learn to rest and abide in him and receive all that we need from him. Let us pray. Father, Thank you for being gracious to us beyond our understanding. If we had been in your position, we would not have been so long-suffering or sacrificial. You know our every action and every secret thought, yet you have loved us in your Son. Teach us to lay down our self-reliance and learn to rest in our Savior. Train us to abide in your Son. We confess that our flesh, it calls us to work in our own efforts, but you call us to take upon ourselves the yoke of Jesus. Bind our hearts to the gentle and lowly Savior. Help us to see that we need him. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you please stand if you're able? Join us, one.